The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 14 as we near the episode of the cross in Mark's gospel. We pick up in this middle section of this important chapter. I won't let you down. Such is the pledge of many when the game is on the line, when facing a crucial deadline at work, when a family member is in need. The disciples all pledge the same commitment to Jesus only to proceed to repeatedly let him down as he enters into his hour of crisis. Our passage is a humble reminder of our human weakness, how we fail to measure up and confirms our need for a Savior, one who truly will never let us down as we face the various crises of this life and the crisis of the judgment to come. I begin reading... Mark chapter 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came and one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him, and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he came up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out, us, come out as against a robber, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we indeed would ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, mere strangers really can't hurt us. When we are rejected by people we hardly know, it doesn't usually keep us up at night. But close friends are another matter. We all have at least a few people who have the capacity to hurt us deeply. We have expectations of parents, children, siblings, spouses, close companions. When they fail to deliver, when they break a promise, forget an anniversary, or betray us, it can be devastating. The result is alienation, making reconciliation very difficult. As the hour neared for Jesus to face a mock trial, injustice, false accusations, severe flogging, and even death by a crucifixion, Jesus must also suffer the pain of being denied, rejected, betrayed by his closest friends on earth. He went to the cross misunderstood, alone, abandoned. We all let people down. Other people let us down. This passage serves to remind us why we need a Savior. One who will never let us down, but who raises us up. Who delivers us from the coming wrath of God and even commissions us to be his witnesses like the first disciples. The opening verse, verse 27, Jesus is strikingly bold and direct, calling out his disciples for abandoning him, what they are about to do. Now, Jesus is privileged with some measure of divine foreknowledge, but it says here that he was interpreting the prophecy of Zechariah 13:7. we believe combined with his keen insights into the hearts of men, especially his closest disciples. His disciples were still holding on to the pipe dream of some type of political triumph in Jerusalem. They had consistently, repeatedly resisted his path to the cross, leaving Jesus to take that journey alone. It was only after the resurrection they would have eyes to see and hearts to understand God's purposes for salvation through suffering. 
Jesus like Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his own brothers. Jesus will be betrayed by those close to him, those whom he depended upon. And yet in this passage, there is not, the, not even a hint of cynicism or disillusionment from Jesus who knew what was in men, who knew that their self-centeredness could only be cured by his work of salvation. Jesus would be crushed by the weight of human sin, but he would not be crushed by his own unmet expectations of others. Jesus goes on to predict his resurrection in just a few days' time, giving instructions to the disciples to meet him back in Galilee, their home territory. And yet the disciples still have no clue. They are guilty of culpable unbelief, repeatedly rejecting this clear teaching, needing the scales removed from their eyes. Presumptuous Peter insists that he will be the last man standing. Others may abandon you, but I will not. Jesus sees right through the proud bluster. He knows that Peter's words have no substance to them. Peter lacked self-awareness, blind to his own weakness and frailty before the rooster would crow the next morning. His fear of man, his self-protection will be exposed, exposing him for the fraud that he was by a mere servant girl who recognized him as a follower of Jesus. The testimony of Adam in the garden, David on a rooftop, Peter warming himself on Good Friday morning is a humble reminder of how weak and vulnerable we truly are. Dr. Rogers reminded us from John 15 last Sunday that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. May we boast in nothing else other than the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet, hearing these, this reproof, this bold challenge from the Master, Peter is still emphatic, insisting that he is ready to die and refuse it, will refuse to deny his Lord Peter is not listening. He is completely unprepared for what he is about to face. He's about to enter the dark night of the soul where he will watch his master crucified, all of his dreams demolished. Jesus, I believe, let Peter know these things. Let Peter know that he indeed would let him down so that afterwards Peter might know that he would be forgiven and know the power of restoration. I believe that these words prevented Peter from taking his own life the way Judas would. When Peter knows that Jesus knew him and loved him anyway, it would make all the difference for Peter. We all want someone that we can depend upon. But we need to be weary of crushing people with the weight of our expectations. Only God has shoulders big enough to bear the weightiness of what we need. We have expectations for spouses, for children, for church leaders, for an employer, for our retirement, for our government, 
Sadly, some of us live with false hope. Just holding out hope that others will come through for us. That the addiction will stop. The abuse will stop. The prodigal will come home. Someone will fulfill his or her word. It is not wrong to pray for such things or to plead for people to change their ways. But may we not make an idol of such things as though we are to derive life from them. Only God gives life. Our passage gives us a sober assessment of our own hearts and the hearts of others. People need Christ more than they need our plans and purposes for them. Notice in the next verse, verse 31, 32, how Jesus needs to pray. Do you ever need to pray? I'm not just talking about scheduled time of prayer or your quiet time, but rather the the deep burden of needing to be alone with your Heavenly Father like Jacob the night before he would face Esau in almost certain death. Like David when he and his men return to Ziklag and find that the Amalekites have taken off with their wives and children, his men talking of stoning him. Yet David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is vital prayer. Jesus is facing the crisis of his life, the crisis of all eternity, the crisis that you and I will never have to face. Jesus will bear the burden of sin, past, present, and future, for all the people of God. Yes, he needed to pray. Verse 33 says that he took Peter, James, and John, his his closest three disciples, and the text says that he was greatly distressed and troubled. Most of us don't wear our emotions on our sleeves. We save them for a few trusted individuals with whom we can be real, transparent, vulnerable. It's impressive that our Savior reveals his distress. He shows that he is greatly troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow to these three men, men that he knew would run away from him in fear. In verse 34, Jesus describes his own emotional state, that he is sorrowful unto death. Many people have known great loss, the loss of a beloved parent, a spouse, a child, the loss of some body function or wealth or dreams. Some people have known such sorrow unto death. There are many pains in this life that can make death attractive as a way of escape from the pains of this life. But with no disrespect for those who have suffered greatly in this life, much more than I have in my short life, none have suffered the depths that Jesus had to suffer. The sorrow of God over the fall of mankind, the grief of the Son separated from the Father, consuming the wrath of Almighty God is a sorrow that we will never have to experience. But it is a sorrow that awaits those who are culpably rebellious, those who have rejected the only means to be saved from the coming wrath 
there is a great sorrow coming. There is also great rejoicing unto life for the redeemed who are spared the punishment that we deserve and gain access to the internal fellowship with the living God because of Christ who endured it on our behalf. You know, historical records tell us of great men who died well. Uh, many Greek, Greeks died facing death with a kind of cool, dispassionate resolve. The great philosophers, even the intertestamental period of the Jews, records that the Jewish revolutionaries faced death with a, a hot-blooded defiance against their pagan murderers. Jesus faces death here with a dire dread. But it is not a fear of pain or even a fear of death itself, but rather an overwhelming sense of bearing the burden of sin. Jesus, when it says he was deeply distressed, the Greek term means astonished. Completely undone and overwhelmed. You know, up till now, Jesus has been in control unflappable, unswayed by attacks and accusations and assaults by his enemies. But here he is undone. The the Greek word that describes Jesus' emotion would be like turning the corner and witnessing a dear loved one having just been mutilated to death in a terrible accident. That's the emotional reaction Jesus faces. He faced the overwhelming power of curse and sin and judgment and punishment. Jesus' struggle in facing such a death is unique compared to the great figures of ancient history and even church history. Many uh, Christian martyrs died well, facing death by wild animals, being hacked to pieces, burnt alive, many entering death more calmly than Jesus does. But we're reminded that Jesus was facing much more than death. In verse 35, Jesus falls to the ground and prays and pleads that if possible, this hour might pass from him. My children occasionally will ask me for something that they know I will not grant. Sometimes they're being mischievous. Other times they just want to let me know how badly they want something, perhaps hoping that I might grant their request later. I don't believe Jesus is petitioning to change the Father's mind. He is not diminishing the gravity of sin, nor the, its offense towards a holy God. Rather, he is asking the question that many people have asked. Cannot there be another way? Why must the spotless Lamb of God be slain, suffer, to atone for the sins of a condemned people? Jesus knew the plan. He would indeed have to drink to the dregs from the cup of God's almighty wrath. And so he requests that this cup might pass from him. So loathsome was the stain of sin, the sting of death, and the sorrow of separation from the Father. But the end of his prayer is crucial. When he says, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus asked with earnestness to the Father and yet trusted the Father completely for the Father's will to be done. Now, some might argue that Jesus was let down, that the Father let him down, 
by not granting this request. But such responses fail to see how God was glorified. Jesus was not let down. Rather, he was vindicated when he rose from the dead. He was not left in shame, corruption, and condemnation. He was delivered. He was exalted. Men would let him down. God would not let him down. You know, people who say they want a God of love but not a God of wrath don't know what they're talking about. A loving God, to have a loving God, we must have an angry God. You don't, if you don't get angry, if you don't get angry when you see your loved one harmed or even harming him or herself, it's because you don't care. The more you love someone, the more capacity you have to anger, to see that object of your love defiled. God's wrath is a measure of the value he places on us. Because God is angry at evil, and because evil must be destroyed, but because God does not want to destroy us, he must provide an alternative by sending his son to absorb our debt to pay our ransom, to make things right. For a God who pays no price to love you does not value you. Remember that Jesus had ordered his three closest disciples to keep watch. He returns after this mighty battle of prayer to find them sleeping. Now, Roman guards who were found sleeping while keeping watch were condemned to death. The disciples deserved no less. Jesus gives them a firm rebuke. He also exhorts them to pray that they might not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus goes to pray a second time, readying himself for the tumult of the cross, and yet he returns again, finding the disciples sleeping once again. My wife likes to tell the story of how when she went into labor with our second child, it was in the evening, and she encouraged me to go to bed, and she would wake me up when it was time, and she woke me up around 2 in the morning, and I kept falling back asleep. I barely got her to the hospital on time. The flesh is weak, though the spirit is willing. My other children were gracious enough to be born at a more reasonable hour. Pray that you not fall into temptation. And as we pray to resist temptation, the Master gives us an example of praying, not my will, but your will be done. I think one of the hardest tasks of prayer is getting our stubborn self-will in conformity with the will of God. That is the hard task of prayer is learning to conform, learning to yield, learning to lay expectations down before the throne of grace, learning to let God be God, and learning to subject ourselves as willing servants, trusting that his will is perfect. Yet a third time, the disciples prove of no use. Jesus must face his crisis alone. He is let down once again with the disciples who are unfit for the task. And now he must face his betrayer. 
I reflecting upon this encounter with Judas, not named, how the disciples, their, their memory of this incident must have been haunting. Jesus knew who the betrayer was, but how could they not have seen it? When they see Judas, were they shocked? Were they enraged? Did they, were they overwhelmed with guilt? Peter is obviously angry, draws a sword, and cuts off the ear of a servant just missing the neck. Jesus is greeted with what we call in our culture the kiss of death. Judas' hypocritical sign of intimacy and fellowship. How many throughout the ages have offered such lip service with no intent upon following Jesus? Jesus's, uh, Judas's mind was corrupted, concluding that it was just better this way. Jesus was leading an unsustainable movement. The priest and the leaders would not uh, endure any type of uprising. The Romans would crush it with grave bloodshed. It's as if Judas agreed with Caiaphas, better for one to die than for the whole nation to perish. Of course, Judas, the scriptures tell us, was succumbed by his temptation to mere greed. He played the percentages. Verses 48 and 49 show us how Jesus does face death well. He does not resist arrest, but he calls out his disarmed mob for their fear of man, their hypocrisy, their cowardice. This act of courage, I believe, inspired the disciples later on. Presently, they were as cowardly as their enemies. But later, they would become bold as lions and stand up to the powers of this world which weigh nothing on divine scales of justice. And indeed, verse 50, the disciples left him and fled just as he predicted. Where were you, Peter? Were you really ready to die with your Lord? You weren't then, but you would be. We can imagine the fear of the disciples taking cover, wondering whether the Gestapo would come and take them in the night. But God spared them that day because he had other purpose, purposes for them, to serve as his witnesses. The authorities judged rightly that they were harmless without their rabbi. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. It would only be later that the Sanhedrin would notice, take note that these men had been with Jesus, seeing how they faced suffering with great boldness. So how... Do you love people who let you down, who fail to support you? How do we recover when betrayed by a spouse, a parent, a child, a boss, a co-worker? Jesus needed his disciples, but he needed God more. He depended upon his friends but no further than his dependency upon God would permit. He knew what to expect from the disciples. He knew their hearts. He knew they would deny him, betray him, abandon him, but he made himself vulnerable to them anyway. God knew our first parents would rebel, would sin, would, would bring condemnation into this world, that it would require him to send his own son to redeem this fallen humanity. And yet God created mankind anyway. 
for the manifestation of his glory. Do you know your own heart? We have only as we know our own hearts that we are prepared before we judge or retaliate against a person who has let us down to consider our own self-centered tendencies that we might show the same grace we have been shown. Yes, even when tough love is necessary. You know, while initially discouraging, I believe in this passage, these actions of the disciples actually encourage us. Obviously, they are not exemplary, but they show us why the cross was necessary. It demonstrates that people are, though failures, are redeemable. Jesus did not recruit virtuous, courageous heroes as his closest disciples. They were ordinary men with fears, with self-serving tendencies, just like you and me. But as we read ahead in the Gospels and the Acts and the Epistles, we find men transformed by the power of the Gospel. In the testimony of the resurrection, gladly willing to suffer for the name of Jesus, which is not worth comparing to the glory revealed in them. This sobering passage is encouraging because it confirms to us the veracity, the reliability of Scripture. Who wrote this? Well, the disciples did. And they would have no human vested interest to include such self-incriminating, embarrassing, cowardly details unless they were true and vital to the message. This passage does not hide their shameful, cowardly behavior. There would have been tremendous personal and cultural pressure to suppress these details at the time in which it was written. Like the story of Jonah. David's affair, his murder, Moses' meltdown at the rock, Abraham's deception, Noah's drunkenness, Samson's dalliances. Each of these tales confirm the scriptural testimony of our depravity and testify to a God able and willing to redeem a fallen humanity through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even the shocking way that Jesus approaches death, not in stoic courage or bold defiance, but with great dread confirms that this was no accident, That Jesus was more than a mere martyr. He was facing curse itself. He would bear the punishment that we sinners deserve to satisfy God's wrath. To reconcile a people to himself for the Father's glory. Hopefully most of us have a few reliable people upon whom we can count on who will not let us down when we need them. But you and I know our weakness and frailty. You and I know that there is only one who will never let you down but raise you up with Christ. Jesus experienced the great letdown so that you and I would not have to. That you and I can face the crises of this life in confidence with a God who will never leave us nor forsake us that we can face the great crisis of the judgment to come with a God who will not leave us or abandon us, but will vindicate us, who will declare us righteous 
through the work of our dear Savior. So let us take from this passage encouragement and hope in the great God who will never leave us, who will never let us down, but will raise us up with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. We thank you, God, for sending your Son. We praise you, Jesus, for enduring the shame and the horror, the humiliation of rejection and betrayal, the burden you bore on the cross for us. And we pray that you might transform us by the power of the cross, by the testimony of your resurrection, to be a people who live for the praise of your glory. Lead us in the week to come, that you might be glorified in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name.